and welcome back to Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast all about the importance of the clothes we wear. Now, I come at you with a Halloween special, like all aging millennials. <laughs> this is my favourite time of year, so I couldn't not give you a little spooky special just to round off the end of spooky season. Now, fashion in history is basically riddled with dangers. Killer clothing was all the rage, and it's just a bizarre concept to think about now, but it was just something that people accepted. (laughs) Clothes, fashions, beauty fads, they were dangerous and they could kill you. Dresses were made of arsenic, hats, mercury, clothing was flammable, socks were made mid dyes that inflamed men's feet and gave garment workers sores and cancer. Makeup damaged women's wrists, nerves so they couldn't raise their hands. You had arsenic crackers, combs that were poisonous that women wore in their hair that exploded if they got too hot. Just a huge, huge array of awful, horrible things that people accepted as part and parcel of being a fashionable, beautiful individual. So I think I'll start with probably the most famous or at least well-known type of poisonous garb, and that is poisonous dresses or arsenic dresses. Now, there was this lovely emerald green dye that was used in fabrics at the time and also popular floral headdresses. And this was in part made of arsenic. Now, this actually became quite an obsession for the Victorian media at the time. And a lot of people died (laughs) from wearing this green fabric. But also it just became a well-known fact that it was poisonous over time. Now, arsenic was used as both a dye as well as a paint. And not only did the green dresses and artificial flowers that were advertised contain arsenic, the illustrations of them did as well, because that was the only way that you could create the colour green at the time. So not only were the people that were wearing these green dresses literally turning green and dying of arsenic poisoning, the people that were being advertised to, if they were picking up these advertisements often enough, would slowly have been poisoned too, which is just an absolutely wild concept when you think about it. Now, as I said, the public concern over arsenic poison did help phase out fashion in places like Scandinavia, France and Germany. But Britain, it took a very long time for us to realise what we were actually doing to people. There is actually a cartoon titled The Arsenic Waltz, which sort of alludes to the use of arsenic in dresses and these artificial flowers. And it appeared in Punch magazine, which was sort of a British comedy humour magazine, a few months after a worker in the fashion industry died of this arsenic poisoning. So we were aware of what was happening, but people perhaps didn't put two and two together until it was a little bit too late and a lot of people had died just from wanting to wear green. Now, according to a book called Fashion Victims, incredible title, (laughs) on November 20th, 1861, a girl called Matilda Schurer, a 19-year-old artificial flower maker, died of accidental poisoning. The formerly healthily good-looking young woman worked for Mr. Bergeson in central London along with a hundred other employees. She fluffed artificial leads, dusting them with an attractive green powder that she inhaled with every breath and ate off of her hands at each meal. So she just could not get away from this arsenic riddled green powder. The brilliant hue of this green pigment, which was used to colour dresses and hair ornaments, was achieved by mixing copper and highly toxic arsenic trioxide, or white arsenic as it was known at the time. The press described her death in grisly detail 
detail and by all accounts, Shura's final illness was really quite horrible as it was a slow, slow event. Apparently, she vomited green waters, the whites of her eyes had turned green and she told her doctor that everything she looked at was green. In her final hours, she had convulsions every few minutes until she died with an expression of great anxiety and green foaming at the mouth, nose and eyes. An autopsy confirmed that her fingernails had turned a very pronounced green as well and the arsenic had reached her stomach, liver and lungs. As in the Punch Punch comic, as I mentioned earlier, it wrote sarcastically in the article entitled Prissy Poison Wreaths two weeks later. It was proved by medical testimony that she had been ill from the same cause four times within the last 18 months. Under such circumstances as these, death is evidently about as accidental as it is when resulting from a railway collision occasioned by arrangements known to be faulty. To the non-medical public then, according to fashion victims, it seemed that Shura's death was predictable and entirely preventable and that her life had been cruelly sacrificed to wealthy women's desire for fashionable adornments, which I suppose is partially true, but you know, (laughs) if it had been happening for a long time and they knew it was completely poisonous, they maybe should have been a little bit more careful. Oh well. But because of this, in fact, several philanthropic organisations took up her cause, including the aristocratic members of the Ladies' Sanitary Association. One member, a Miss Nicholson, had already visited the garrets and workshops where flowers were made and had published a shocking first-hand account of following half-clad and half-starved girls with bandaged hands and some contagious disease as they picked up an order of leaves and turned it into bouquets. Nicholson wrote that one of the girls stubbornly refused to work any more. She had observed her fellow flower makers in the workshop wearing handkerchiefs soaked with blood and she herself had been kept on working with the green until her face was one mass of green sores and she was almost blind. Nicholson's article started her readers to the fact that the young female workers were ignorant of the nature and effects of arsenic greens and imagine that it gives them a dreadful cold. (laughs) Just that, apparently. After Shura's death, the Ladies' Sanitary Association, commissioned by Dr. A.W. Hoffman, an analytical chemist with a worldwide reputation, to test artificial leaves from a lady's headdress. Hoffman shared his results with the public in a London Times article sensationally titled The Dance of Death. The expert concluded that an average headdress contained enough arsenic to poison 20 people. The green tartlines so much of late in vogue for ball dresses contained as much as half their weight in arsenic, meaning a ball gown fashioned from 20 yards of this fabric should have a 900 grains of arsenic in it. A Berlin doctor had also determined that from a dress of this kind, no less than 60 grains powdered off in the course of a single evening. A grain based on the weight of a wheat grain is equivalent to 64.8 milligrams of a pound. Four or five grains were lethal for an average adult. So basically, (laughs) very, 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 very poisonous. As I said, all of this information is taken from a book called Fashion Victims, as well as um, an article from National Geographic by someone called Becky Little, all about poisonous fashion and arsenic dresses. So have a look there if you want a bit more detailed information and some photos. But a week after Hoffman's findings were published, the British medical journal called Green-clad Women Femme Fatales. As they said, well may the fascinating wearer of it be called a killing creature. She actually carries in her skirts poison enough to slay the whole of the admirers she may meet within half a dozen ballrooms. So here they're not talking about the women that are um, making the clothes and actually dying of the arsenic poison but also of the high society women who are wearing these poisonous dresses sort of maybe unknowingly to balls and to meet admirers they are you know killing women femme fatales because unknowingly they are killing their suitors which is crazy (laughs) 
Female activists called on chemists to warn the British public about these poisonous dresses, and wealthy women were clad in green, were called murderers. It was privileged ladies from the same social classes who had blown the whistle of the dangers of arsenic green dresses and were calling on chemists to back up their claims with what they knew and to let these other women know. Toxic green wreaths and poison flower makers made headlines at this point, and in the 19th century, arsenic and the arsenic phobia, it was called, provoked, just was everywhere. James Wharton's book, The Arsenic Century, How Victorian Britain Was Poisoned at Home, is a really, really good book for this. And it demonstrates how poisonous the substance was. And it talks about arsenic acid or white arsenic went into pigments, rat poisons and medicines as it was a cheap colourless substance, a fine white powder obtained as a byproduct of mining and smelting like copper, cobalt and tin. And it was used by doctors to heal and by murderers to kill, accidentally finding its way into food and beer and eventually clothes. A child could buy it over the counter in a pharmacy even and the poison um, could assume many, many forms. In Britain, acts like the Control of Poisons Bill of 1851 and the Arsenic Act of 1868 were passed to limit the amounts that could be sold to individuals but it was completely legal and unregulated for large-scale use in industry and that is why so many hundreds of tons went into consumer products annually as i said though there was a lot of knowledge as to the you know the dangers of um, this substance and according to a 2005 documentary called senior chanel one of the most powerful women in the chanel haute couture houses said that seamstresses don't like green and this anti-green stance became a vague superstition linked with a fear of sort of bad luck but really it's because so many people were dying of green poisoning around Europe and particularly in England that it the information travelled down and eventually these haute couture houses knew to stay away. Coco Chanel for example as she had a real fear of colour in her clothes and particularly of green and is unknown where she got this information from. She was born to a working class family in 1883, orphaned at the age of 12, and nuns taught her to sew in the orphanage she lived in. By her early 20s, she was working in a fashion boutique and soon a millinery shop, which she which became her own on the ground floor of her Paris apartment. She learned the technical aspects of her trade from a professional called Lucien Rabat and polished her skills with the queen of milliners, Caroline Rabot. And it is unknown whether she learned about the poison of green from the nuns at the orphanage, her employer at the boutique, or the professional milliners she worked with later in her 20s. But her teachers belonged to the older generation who would have remembered and maybe even experienced firsthand the medical problems from green arsenic. The French had banned arsenic pigments in artificial foliage by this period. It still tinted a myriad of consumer items and was widely used in the marketing and packaging of fashion goods, like I said earlier. Now, all of this sounds like a very historical, antiquated concept of using, you know, poisonous substances in our clothes. But actually, you'd be surprised how often this still happens, particularly in cheaper made fast fashion garments. So many of them get <laughs> recalled because they've got traces of lead or other horrible things in their clothes because of the regulation of chemicals around the world is so different to between countries and it's cheap to make clothes without too much regulation and so don't think that this is just a victorian thing because clothes are still poisonous even today so be very careful what you buy and where you buy from
For example, um, from an article in Harper's Bazaar by Amanda Gorman, in 2019, H&M and Ikea decided to test pre-consumer textile waste and post-consumer clothing cast-offs that had been collected in Europe in preparation for potentially recycling them into new products. The study found that 8% of all the samples contained traces of chromium, a heavy metal and carcinogen that can cause a rash when absorbed into the skin and cancer at really high levels. It also found that in 27% of the post-consumer samples, there were other high levels of toxic chemicals, which have very scientific names that I don't know the name of. (laughs) But meaning these chemicals will essentially just completely mess with your hormones and give you rashes and other horrible things. While H&M says that few of the samples were over industry limits and cautions that more research is needed, it was a rare glimpse at just how pervasive toxic chemicals in our clothes are even today. So there you have it. (laughs) Apparently, and according to this article by Amanda Gorman, the results weren't seen as surprising to anyone who worked behind the scenes in fashion. According to them, there are tens of thousands of chemicals used in commerce, says a man called Dr. Matea Kausch, the director of technical development at the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, (laughs) which is a voluntary certification for environmentally sustainable products. As he says, Nike estimates that there are more than 3,000 chemicals used in footwear and manufacturing alone. And so basically, no one was surprised at these numbers, even though to us they sound pretty scary. If you work behind the scenes and you work for these sort of fashion companies that deal with chemicals, it's just part and parcel. So, you know, we're still not safe. Now, green wasn't the only colour that was toxic at this time. Pretty much any vibrant colour would have used some trace levels of arsenic and would therefore have been quite poisonous to the wearer. Green is obviously the one we know best because it was the one that needed the highest levels of arsenic to create that vibrant green colour that became really, really popular. But even colours like mauve, which was used as a synthetic dye, which was vibrant and quite gaudy, became very, very fashionable. But they were also very, very risky to the wearers. In 1856, a man called William Henry Perkins accidentally invented mauve while um, testing out different colours of synthetic dye. And arsenic and pitric acid were some of the toxic chemicals that were used to create this colour. And this is something that people don't realise, but a lot of the colours that we know today were founded through fashion and through people exploring with different colours to create fashionable garments. But by doing this, they had to dally in very, very poisonous chemicals. (laughs) There is a pair of mauve boots at the Batashu Museum in Toronto, Canada, that shows how bright this synthetic colour was, but most likely they would have been poisonous. (laughs) According to a man named Matthews David, the colour is seductive and when creating this um, exhibition, an exhibition called Fashion Victims in the Batoshi Museum, another (laughs) same title, Um, they wanted people to understand how beautiful these articles were and how people would wear them even if they knew they were harmful because they were exciting, they were seductive, they were something they'd never seen before and they were alluring in a way that meant they just didn't really care. (laughs) There you go. I found this information in an article called Fatal Victorian Fashion and the Allure of the Poison Garment from Alison Meerut from 2014. So that's a really good read if you want a little bit more scientific detail and more information on this exhibition from the Toronto Museum from the same year. Now, this idea of creating colour is really interesting, particularly when it comes to the green arsenic dye that I was talking about earlier, because according to the Wellcome Library and a medical journey from 1859, there was no colour green that you could wear in clothes, only the option to do a blue overlay with yellow or vice versa. But by mixing arsenic and copper, 
A man called Carl Wilhelm Scheele developed a pigment that would hold, whether in paint, fabric, wallpaper, the colour green, and it was its own colour without having to overlay others. And apparently it also happened to look fantastic under natural and new gaslight, which was an important um, distinction for the time. And also we need to remember that in the 19th century, this was a time where London and other cities, for example, were quite nasty places to be. You know, you think of Dickens and foggy London and the Industrial Revolution. The idea of green spaces were disappearing for these people and nature was incredibly hard to find. So this colour green became really popular because of the backdrop of the country in England and in the whole of Europe at the time because of these industrial revolutions and people were desperate to be able to access this colour in a way that they had been able to before and now were struggling to do. And particularly that's why it was popular in the creation of artificial flowers because it was very difficult to grow flowers in the cities because of the amount of fog and chemicals that were just in the air. And so creating artificial flowers was a way for people to have this as part of their life as well as part of fashion. However, as we know, (laughs) these were actually incredibly, incredibly toxic and would not have given you the breath of fresh air that you were perhaps aiming for when you bought or wore these artificial flowers. A writer called Baudelaire titled his book of poems Flores du Mal or The Flowers of Evil, which just tells you everything you need to know really, doesn't it? (laughs) There is also this incredible 1862 engraving which shows a skeleton man at a ball asking a skeleton lady to dance, which is meant to represent the effect of arsenic dyes and pigments in high class clothing at the time it's just really dark and really quite cool and spooky (laughs) if you like that kind of thing that is now moving on not only were dyes very poisonous um in terms of clothes and history particularly in the 19th century But actually, the materials used and the size and shape of dresses were also very deadly. Crinoline skirts were all the rage in the 1800s. Now, the crinoline was generally out of fashion by 1878, but it originated in the 1850s as a large dome-shaped skirt. Now, these huge hooped underskirts with cotton or gauze over the top were what gave us the image that we have of 1800s or late 1800s fashion in which women wore huge hooped skirts and smaller corseted tops. However, when you wore this dress, you were literally trapped in a metal cage that was impossible to remove and covered in extremely flammable fabric at a time when open flames and fires were very common. I think you can see where I'm going with this. It is apparently estimated that around 3,000 crinoline fire deaths took place between the years of 1850 and 1860. These dresses were also not a great combination with industrial machinery. According to Alison Matthew Davis, a professor in the School of Fashion at Ryerson University in Toronto and the author of the book Fashion Victims that I mentioned earlier, One Mill in Lancashire posted a sign in 1860 forbidding the present ugly fashion of hoops or crinoline, as it is called, as being quite unfitted for the work of our factories. As apparently a printing girl, someone worked with a mechanical printing press, was caught by a crinoline and dragged under the mechanics. She was reportedly very slim and escaped unharmed, but the foreman banned the skirts anyway. And rightly so, I'd say. (laughs) 
Also, according to an article called Seven Ways Victorian Fashion Can Kill You by Bess Lovejoy, <laughs> the white cotton that was popular in the late 18th and 19th centuries also had a lot of dangers to both maker and wearer. It was produced with brutal slave labour on plantations, which is obviously just vile, and it was also more flammable than the heavy silks and wool favoured by the wealthy in previous centuries. There was a type of cotton lace that was particularly problematic, and in 1809, John Heathcote patented a machine that made the first woven silk and cotton cotton pillow lace or bobbinet, now better known as tulle, which would actually catch fire in an instant and was extremely lethal. The tulle was frequently layered to add volume and compensate for its sheerness and was stiffened with highly combustible starch. Ballerinas were particularly at risk and British ballerina Clara Webster died in 1844 when her dress caught fire at London's Drury Lane Theatre after her skirt came too close to the sunken lights on stage. So not only are chemicals that are used in fashion deadly poisonous, but the actual materials themselves um, might make you meet a sticky end. According to Lovejoy, even the average woman wearing the then popular voluminous crinolines were at risk of setting herself on fire. The flannelette, plain cotton brush to create a nape and resemble wool flannel, was so popular for nightshirts and undergarments, but was particularly combustible if hit with a stray spark or the flame of a household candle. So many children burned in household accidents that one company came out with a specially treated flannelette called non-flam, advertised as being strongly recommended by coroners. <laughs> Now, we have to talk about the phrase mad as a hatter. Now, many people think that this refers to the physical effects that hat makers endured from using mercury in their craft. This is kind of disputed by scholars as to whether it was actually the origin of the phrase. But many hatters, milliners and things like that, developed very brutal mercury poisoning. Now, you probably know this phrase, particularly from Alice in Wonderland, the Mad Hatter. This is a sort of play on the effects that poisoning could have to hatters at the time, as it would change their personality a great deal because their minds and their brains were literally being physically poisoned. However, the actual things that hatters suffered at the time were quite horrific. It was debilitating and deadly if you suffered mercury poisoning. But it was not only hatters that suffered this mercury poisoning, as in the Victorian era, as you well know, upper class men wore hats pretty much all the time with their um, fashionable attire when they were outside, and many of those hats were made with mercury. However, much similar to what I was talking about with arsenic poisoning, it was known that mercury was poisonous, but it was a cheap and efficient way to make fabric very stiff. Mercury also gave animal fur a smooth, glossy texture, and that was often used on the innards of hat, despite it being an extremely dangerous substance. However, hatters particularly were known to suffer with cramps, paralysis, reproductive problems, convulsions, trembling and other horrible, horrible things. And to make matters worse, hatters who drank while they worked hastened mercury's effects by hampering the liver's ability to eliminate it, according to Davids. But mercury can rapidly enter the body through the skin or the air and causes a range of horrible health effects, as I mentioned. And drinking whilst you're using this chemical would have meant it got directly into the system, but also would have 
stopped the production of your liver so it was just extremely deadly there was actually a hat making town in a place called danbury in connecticut in america which was known as a place that would give you the danbury shakes because so many of the people that lived there were hatters and they would have suffered this trembling that i mentioned earlier due to the use of mercury which they would brush over felt and fur to stick the hat together and it was in its most toxic form Now, not only did hatters suffer physical effects from the use of mercury, but they would have suffered mental effects too, which is where the idea of the mad hatter came from. For example, they would become very paranoid. They would sometimes have large outbursts. They would become very angry or just extremely eccentric. And they would also lose their teeth. And this would make them be seen as sort of eccentric individuals along with their wild outbursts and change of personality, which again, you can see documented from the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland, which is a really interesting little snippet of fashion history from, you know, a different place than you'd expect. And according to David again, the only thing that made Mercury disappear was the fact that men's hats went out of fashion in the 1960s and that's really when it dies. It was never actually banned in Britain but just eventually phased out, which is absolutely wild when you think about it and not massively dissimilar to the use of arsenic. Actually, a lot of very interesting examples of poisonous fashion, not just from the Victorians who seem to have been rife with <laughs> the dangers and the newfound chemicals that were being used, but in mythology, Greek, Indian folklore, American urban legends, there are loads and loads of examples of fashion fads and types of clothing materials that would have been poisonous. For example, in Indian folklore from times like the 1600s and 1700s, there are so many folk tales about men using poisonous garments to eliminate their enemies. Also in Greek mythology, for example, when Jason left the sorceress Medea to marry Glauche, King Creon's daughter, Medea took her revenge by sending Glauche a poison dress and a golden coronet, which was dipped in poison. This resulted in the death of the princess and subsequently the king when he tried to save her. And this poison dress motif is similar to the shirt of flame and comes up a great deal in Greek mythology. Even see it in the tale of Hercules, of Sophocles, tragedy, just a huge amount of Greek tales involve the use of poisonous garments, whether knowingly or not knowingly. Another tale that we see that is actually very popular is the 19th century story of Snow White, introduced by the Grimm brothers in their famous anthology. The Wicked Queen, driven wild with her envy, fails to kill Snow White, her stepdaughter, with a corset laced tightly enough to suffocate her. And then she tries other forms of murder. And one of these is that she uses a poisoned comb. And here the Queen is really weaponizing accessories and items of clothing that would sit close to the skin such as combs and corsets of course as we know this doesn't actually work and eventually she uses the poison apple but it's really interesting to see this idea of dangerous poisonous deadly fashion cropping up not only in real use with chemicals but in such you know popular mythological tales now this may have been inspired as the 16th century queen catherine de medici was actually accused of lacing gloves with poison to give to her enemies so there you go Who knows whether she did this or not, but that's what a lot of these tales were inspired by, particularly from the Brothers Grimm. There is a painting um, by Franz Jutter called The Queen Visits Snow White and offers her some potentially fatal garments, which gives you a really cool visual image of the story I just told. 
Now, moving on from clothes and accessories, I think we have to talk a little bit about deadly makeup and beauty fads, as these are a really interesting part of fashion and famously were very, very dangerous. In the Victorian era, again, (laughs) clear faces, bright eyes and sort of slightly tinted lips were the most desirable beauty fad. But a pure natural face free from blemishes, freckles or marks was considered the most beautiful. So this idea of softness, of paleness, of clear skin is what sort of informed a lot of these beauty fads that we see arising. However, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, actually wearing makeup was seen as a very um, inappropriate, frivolous thing to do because it was associated with sex workers at the time. And also it was this idea that you were removing God's will. You weren't keeping your face exactly had God given it to you by changing it with makeup. And so women did not want others to know that they were wearing makeups and creams and things like this to make their face desirably clear and fresh. Cold cream, for example, which was made of water, oil, emulsifier and thickening agent became um, very popular in the beauty rituals of Victorian women because it was believed that cold cream was beneficial for cleansing the skin and providing a softening, moisturising effect and it would give you this pale, softened look to your skin. It was actually a safe product to use, was not seen as inappropriate to use and the invention of cold cream is actually a really, really ancient thing. It's really interesting because it's still used today and was still used very popularly into the mid-century. However, women that did not use this cold cream or would have wanted to go to more extreme effects to gain this pale, softened look were the ones who would have suffered. Many women would have used white paints and enamels on their faces and arms to gain a white, pale look. However, these substances were dangerously corrosive because they contained lead, mercury and arsenic and women would have to of kept applying them to cover up the damage that these chemicals were doing to their skin. And this would have meant women had to avoid quite exaggerated facial expressions because the substances within this white paint would have cracked on the skin. And so that is why we get this image of the sort of stunted, expressionless, pale Victorian woman because her skin was literally burning (laughs) and she also could not make any facial expressions because the chemicals she wore on her face would have cracked cracked and splintered over her skin, which is just an absolutely wild thought. Famously, people think about Queen Elizabeth, Henry VIII's daughter, who famously wore lead paint to make herself as pale as possible. But actually, this was a fad that was more commonly used in the Victorian era. But that's just not something that people really think about when they think about this idea of lead makeup. And another way that women would have um, gained this white pale complexion would have been to nibble on arsenic crackers or wafers and this would have helped you achieve a translucent complexion as well as bright eyes however some of the side effects included cancer boldness and epilepsy in 1902 you could actually buy arsenic wafers from the shop sears in america (laughs) but arsenic limits your body's ability to create red blood cells which is what happens when you die so (laughs) yeah 
horrible, but less red blood cells under the layers of your skin meant you would appear paler. So I suppose to them it did work. But that's actually what happens to dead people, <laughs> which is why the skin becomes so pale in death. And that is the look that these women were aiming to achieve by eating these arsenic wafers to basically stop their body creating red blood cells. It's absolutely wild when you think about it. A popular lead-laced cosmetic product in the 1800s was called Laird Blooms of Youth and one of the founders of the American Medical Association treated three young women who had been using the product daily and temporarily lost full use of their hands and wrists as a result. The doctor described the condition as lead palsy, although today we call it wrist drop or radial nerve palsy, which is caused by lead poisoning. One of the women's hands was also said to be wasted to a skeleton, vile. All of that was also from David's book, Fashion Victims. Also moving back to this idea of having bright eyes, women would use drops of belladonna in their eyes to dilate their pupils and make their eyes look bigger, brighter and more watery. But this, of course, would turn women blind and they would think that the burning in their eyes was their eyes being cleaned, but actually it was just their eyes being singed with acid. And obviously they would water because the acid was creating this horrible chemical effect. Your pupils would completely dilate, making your eyes look bigger and brighter. But that was, again, just the poison working its magic. <laughs> Some women would use orange and lemon juice to clear their eyes, which I can't even imagine how awful that felt, but would not have been quite as poisonous as belladonna and would have still had the desired look of big watery eyes, which apparently was really, really beautiful. I don't know. <laughs> Mercury was also used to make eyebrows and eyelashes less sparse and this was used as a balm but of course mercury too as we found out is extremely poisonous so women were balming their eyes with lead, belladonna, <laughs> mercury for these gorgeous watery eyes, sparse eyelids and pale skin and I just can't even imagine how nightmarish some of these people would have looked up close because of the amount of deadly chemicals they were just lathering on their skin and pouring into their eyes it's, ooh, it's horrific in some places in the 1800s in america particularly eyelash transplants were all the rage a specialist would sew the hair directly into the eyelid with a needle not like we know it today <laughs> they would sew through your eyelid fake lashes alongside this mercury balming you were using on your natural lashes i just can't even fathom how that would have felt but apparently it was the desirable look and it was quite popular now these horrific poisonous beauty fads were not just a victorian thing as this episode seems to lead you to believe that was just when it was most documented and most popular i suppose but it also goes back all the way to the roman era pre-revolution france and the renaissance period in the renaissance era Ladies would have wanted to have had wide hips, narrow waists, long legs, a sort of statuesque version of beauty. But at the same time, they also wanted to have very short teeth, which is another very strange beauty fad that would have been quite dangerous. The smaller your teeth were, the better it was considered. And sometimes they were filed down to reduce the size to be the most beautiful at a given event. And some of these women were obviously left with tiny tiny short teeth that have been filed down not in a way that we would do it now with veneers and things like that and eventually would have obviously gained abscesses and infections and wouldn't have been able to eat properly and this fashion fad would probably for a lot of people cause quite deadly repercussions <laughs> Ugh. 
Also talking about teeth, to white their teeth, the Romans would rinse their mouth with urine. (laughs) Specifically, urine shipped in from Portugal, but it would have been unrefrigerated, transported on ships. And so, yeah, that would have caused you a whole lot of stomach problems. Were this something you were rinsing your mouth with and probably drinking some of? Absolutely disgusting. But it is another example of fashion dictating how long you lived. (laughs) Now, in pre-revolution France, the most popular skin look for women particularly was accentuated bright veins. Some people would colour their veins with blue pencil to make them pop and others would even use leeches to suck out the blood to make their veins even more noticeable. But obviously leaching your skin is massively dangerous and in some cases very poisonous if you do it a great deal and very frequently. And also, as we know, a lot of brightly coloured dyes pre-sort of mid-century were extremely, extremely poisonous and I'm sure blue dyes were no different. And so colouring your skin, seeping it into your veins with this possibly deadly poisonous chemical could not have had very nice results however this strange relationship with skin altering is not just a historic thing as shortly after the invention of the x-ray machine in the sort of 50s and 60s people used the x-ray machines for beauty reasons not just medical reasons and they would use it to treat acne hair removal eczema and some of the side effects included atrophy ulcerations and cancer because as we know x-rays used in this quantity and without any sort of safety or support are deadly so i'm gonna end it there i think there's so many horrific dark stories of deadly poisonous fashion i hope you've enjoyed listening to this i hope it's made you suitably spooked for spooky season and i hope you have a wonderful wonderful halloween i will see you in a week's time for the start of my new series which I mentioned earlier which will be a deep dive into some of the most iconic styles of fashion I've got six whole episodes for this series and I really hope that you enjoy them and I really hope you enjoyed this one happy Halloween see you in the next one stay fab everyone Mm